Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Germany Elects, a special world review podcast series on the German election from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, international editor of the New Statesman, and this fifth episode of Germany Elects is our last before polling day, Sunday, September 26th. The New Statesman will be covering the results live on our website, newstatesman.com, and in the meantime, and indeed afterwards, you can find all our coverage at newstatesman.com slash Germany. To start off this week's episode, I'll be discussing your questions on the election with my colleague, Emily Tamkin. Well, things are definitely not going as they should be with France. And I think the Biden administration and sort of policymakers in Washington more generally are going to want to make sure that that doesn't extend to Europe more broadly. And the outcome of the German election and how they welcome in the new chancellor and the new government will help sort of decide that. And then I'll be discussing the climate crisis. How do Germany's policies stack up and what role has it played in the campaign? People understand increasingly that the extreme weather events are related directly to climate change and it is already having a direct impact on everybody's lives. Philippa Nuttall, the New Statesman's Environment and Sustainability Editor. I don't want to talk about climate protection anymore. We just have to get on with it. Your vote will decide the last government that can actively influence climate change. This is Annalena Baerbock, the Green Party's candidate for Chancellor, in a TV ad filmed in the midst of a forest in Germany's Harz Mountains. When she was initially selected in the spring, her party briefly surged into first place in the polls. And it looked like she might even succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor. Since then, it's fallen back to third place. The latest polls put the Social Democratic SPD in the lead, followed by Merkel's Christian Democratic CDU-CSU alliance, but on 16%, the Greens look set to almost double their result from the last election. Along with the Conservative Liberal Free Democrats, or FDP, who were in fourth place, Baerbock's party may well be the kingmakers in the coalition talks after the election. On the current polling, both the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats would like to form a coalition with those two smaller parties. That could make for fiery negotiations, particularly on climate policies. 
Here's Christian Lindner, the FDP's yuppie-ish leader, being disobliging about Green Party policies at a rally last Sunday, September 19th. The way to protect the climate is not by preaching bans and sacrifices, or by being hostile to economic opportunity and growth. Perhaps that way we can become the moral champions of the world and others will praise us for our moral behaviour, but no one will follow us. The climate crisis has been a major topic in the election campaign. Some polling suggests it's the issue that matters most to German voters. The flooding in Western Germany in July helped push it up the agenda. So too have civil society campaigns like the Fridays for Future movement. Here's Luisa Neubauer, a student and Germany's answer to Greta Thunberg, speaking at a demonstration in Berlin's government quarter in 2019. For as long as the government doesn't act, for as long as the people in the buildings around us, for as long as the important men in suits in this country do nothing, we'll keep going and we're not going to stop. Neubauer and other environmentalists have been much more of a presence than in previous German election campaigns. Here she is on the talk show Markus Lanz on September 21st, criticizing the way the media has treated the subject. The way the debate is being conducted, the way the climate crisis is being reduced to a question of bureaucracy, to little side projects that can be done or not, it's totally logical that people are more worried about the increase in tax deductions than the increase in sea levels. But that in no way reflects the crisis we are in. Neubauer has a point. Some of the coverage, in the three TV debates for example, has arguably focused too narrowly on the immediate costs of climate protection rather than the urgency of the crisis itself. Still, it seems likely that this topic will play a significant role in Sunday's results and in the potentially dramatic coalition talks to follow. More on that in a bit. But first, let's explore how the election itself will work. Well, to discuss what to look out for on election night this weekend. And to answer some of your You Ask Us questions, I'm very pleased to be joined by my podcaster in crime, Emily Tamkin from the World Review Podcast. Hello, I have finally made it onto Germany elects. Very exciting. We wouldn't have managed without you. Emily's currently quarantining in a hotel in Tel Aviv before she's allowed out to do her reporting in Israel. So thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule of quarantining to join us for this. It's truly and sincerely my pleasure. The other advantage of having Emily here is that, uh, first of all, she can tell us a bit about how the US, where she's usually based, sees the German election, and also so that she can hold me to a degree of clarity in, in explaining the sometimes complex nature of the German political system. Um, so Emily, your job here is to tell me if I'm being too abstruse or nerdy, and I'll try and be a bit more straightforward. So with that, why don't you just, first of all, you know, you've flown in from Washington. What's the view over there of the German election? What do people want from it? I think, I mean, I think to the extent that people in Washington are following the German election, I do think that there will be some relief. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but some relief if it's not Lachette. I just think that his foreign policy of sort of the comments that he's made about Russia and about Syria would take certain tendencies that already exist in German foreign policy and exacerbate them in direction that Washington does not want to see. Beyond that, I, I think maybe of the of the three sort of leading contenders, Baerbock is maybe the most aligned with with Biden thinking. But I, I think, you know, as as you've covered extensively, Schultz would in some way be a contender for the Merkel era, which I think would be 
would be fine, right, for policymakers in Washington. The other thing that I would say is that I think we're going to see in the coming days, Washington maybe sort of grapple with the fact, or perhaps they are already grappling with the fact that things are not going as they should be. Well, things are definitely not going as they should be with France. And I think the Biden administration and sort of policymakers in Washington more generally are going to want to make sure that that doesn't extend to Europe more broadly and the outcome of the German election and how they welcome in the new the new chancellor and the new government will help sort of decide that right and decide the extent to which these are American Franco tensions that need to be soothed over or whether they have a problem with the EU more broadly. But I actually have a question for you, which is for Americans listening to this, could you briefly tell us how the German election works? Right. So when Germans go to vote, they get a ballot paper with two columns on it. And the first is for their first vote and the second is for their second vote. Uh, Germans get two votes. The first of those, the so-called Erststimme, is how they vote for their constituency MP. And there are 299 constituencies in Germany, and each of them is guaranteed to get its constituency MP into the Bundestag. Um, but then there's a second vote, the Zweitstimme, which is for a party list. So each of the parties has a list of candidates in each of its states. Now, that's the vote that is used to decide how the overall balance of power in the Bundestag looks. That's the vote that makes it proportional. Germany has a so-called mixed member proportional system that combines constituency representation with proportionality. Now, the the issue or what complicates it somewhat is that sometimes a party can do very, very well in the constituency seats, in the constituency votes, but doesn't get that many list votes. So people vote for their local candidates, but they don't vote for the party per se. And that creates what are so-called overhang seats, which means that a party gets more constituency seats than its proportional share would dictate. And so to make the overall Bundestag proportional, the other parties, particularly those that do disproportionately badly in the constituencies, but who are broadly popular as parties, get so-called balancing seats. And those balancing seats top up the overall number to create a proportional Bundestag. And that tends to benefit smaller parties with a nonetheless sizable support in the country. So, for example, the Greens. The Greens win or have traditionally won very few constituencies, but in recent elections have had eight or so percent of the votes overall. So they get lots of balance seats to over, to correct that uh, and, and make the overall total proportional. Well, I know that we actually have some listener questions as well. So maybe I will stop dominating the question floor and, and we can go through some of those. Absolutely. Um, we got a great response to my call out for these. So thank you to everyone who sent them in. We'll try and go through them all, which will mean I'll have to give relatively quick answers. But Emily, if you think that any of those has been insufficient, then let me know. Will do. All right. So it is now time for a rapid fire round of a section that we like to call You Ask Us. First, we have a question from Josh who asks, what are the similarities and differences between the constituency connection in Germany and the UK, aware that only some are elected with first past the post? You sort of just spoke to this, but is there anything that you think we should add? Um, not particularly other than, obviously, MPs for particular seats, they, they spend time there, they meet their constituents, just as British constituency MPs do. The big difference is actually, it's, it's simply the size of the constituencies, because there's only 299 in the country, and Germany has a larger population than, than the UK. Each constituency MP represents many more people than the average British MP. So I think the average population of a seat is about 
280,000, whereas it's more like sort of 70 to 80,000 in the UK. We now move to a question from Thurman, Thurman, apologies if I mispronounced that, who asks, the Zweitstimme, is it applied at country level or at regional levels, i.e. are the votes of Bayern, NRW, etc. added together to obtain the total percent? Thanks. Yeah, so this is the second list vote in which people vote for an, a party rather than an individual candidate. That's worked out at a state level. So each party has a list for each state and the overall balance of party representation for each state is calculated based on the results there. But of course, because the result is proportional, because the overall proportion of votes that a party gets in that second vote category decides its proportion both at a state level and at a national level, that doesn't distort the results somehow. But yes, it is calculated at a state level. And now a question from Neil. How accurate are the... Oh, uh, listeners, I apologize. I have not lived in Germany for eight years now. <laughs> that was That was a perfectly... Perfectly decent pronunciation. So Neil wants to know lots going on with additional members, overhang, adjustment seats, 5% hurdle, etc. Do the exit polls always get it right? The result usually seems clear early on. Yeah, so German election nights work a bit differently from those in other countries. The polls shut at 6pm local time, and the public broadcasters immediately publish, first of all, what's known as a prognosa, so a forecast, which is based on exit polls. And then usually about 10 or 15 minutes later, they publish their first Hochrechnung, which is based on results from reported results from local um, counts. They are distinct. The prognosa, as I said, which comes out immediately at 6pm, is based on exit polls. The Hochrechnung is based on actual results. And over the course of the evening, as more and more results come in, that Hochrechnung, that uh, projection or that sort of updated calculation gets updated over the course of the evening until all of the votes are in and you have a final result. But as Neil points out, often they are they are pretty accurate. And it is easier to get these things right in a proportional system because there aren't as many cliff edges, as it were, as in a, in a majoritarian or constituency-based system. So for example, last time, 2017, I actually went back and looked at this. The prognosa, so at 6pm, said 33.5% for the CDU-CSU Merkel's party. The first Hochrechnung came in at 12 minutes later, and said 32.7%. And the final result was 32.9%. So he's right, they do tend to be quite accurate. And I don't see any major reasons why that won't be the case this Sunday, too. Next up, we have Nick, who wants to know, do you think the election results will return the largest Bundestag ever due to the number of overhang seats? Could this affect the formation of a coalition? Well, you spoke a little bit about this at the top, and you know how, how it's the, the downside is kind of that you can get a bloated Bundestag. So are we going to see that this time? Yes, it seems quite likely. I mean, the 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 system worked pretty well back when there were two dominant blocks. So back in, for example, to take an election largely at random, 1976, the CDU, CSU and the SPD together got um, over 91% of votes. And they also dominated, of course, the constituency seats. And so there wasn't too much maths to do afterwards. On our current New Statesman poll tracker, however, they're currently together on only 46.9% this time around. And of course, because those two parties, they have the links to the constituencies, they are still the two largest parties, they tend to dominate the constituency seats. It just means you have to do an awful lot of correction afterwards for smaller parties like the Greens, like the Free Democrats, like the AFD, like the Left Party so that it's it's proportional overall. And that just means you have to award a lot of 
balance seats afterwards and that makes the overall Bundestag very large. So at the moment, for example, there are 299 constituencies, like I said, but 410 list seats because it took that many to make the last election result proportional. That's even more likely to be the case next time. And so it's likely that the Bundestag will grow from its current 709 seats to potentially over 800 or some have even suggested 900. Obviously, there is a debate to be had about political reform, but that won't happen before the election. So yes, it could be a very large Bundestag. And would that affect how coalitions are formed? I think it's unlikely because the the overall result is a proportional um, one. So it doesn't the fact that the Bundestag might be very large doesn't tell us anything that we're not already getting from the polls. Mm. Okay, well, I actually have more coalition questions for you. I'm going to actually combine these next two because Will wanted to know what would Lindner be like as finance minister? But then Jonathan asked, various articles keep noting that the uh, various articles on an Ampel government and Christian Linder wa- keep on noting that the FDP would like the finance ministry and see it as their price for joining government. Why would the SPD and the Greens even consider surrendering the most powerful ministry to the smallest party? Right. So first of all, just to explain, an ample government is one of these strange terms that Germans use for a certain sort of coalition. In this case, ample means traffic light. Um, In this case, it's the colours of the traffic light. So red, yellow, green, namely the Social Democrats, the the Conservative Liberal Free Democrats and the uh, Green Party. Now, the leader of the Free Democrats, Christian Lindner, has, as Jonathan notes, said that he want to be finance minister as, as, as the price of the FDP support for government. He asks, would the other parties consider that? And it's a good question because the the FDP is broadly right of the centre and is particularly economically hawkish, whereas the SPD and Greens are are more centre-left and more economically dovish. They want more public investment. And to his question, would they consider it? I think they would. If if, if that was what it took to get a government led by the SPD, which is the the largest of those three parties in the current polls, I think they would be willing to pay that price. Now, that would be difficult because Lindner is opposed to, for example, the sorts of public investment that they want to see. He's very wedded to Germany's doctrinaire debt break. There are ways around that. I won't go into the details now, but I think they would be able to find some sort of compromise if it was necessary. And then to Will's question, what would he be like as finance minister? Um, Yes, he would block certain forms of new investment, but I think that... it's worth noticing, noting that the SPD under Olaf Scholz is not that fiscally radical anyway. We discussed that in the last but one episode of Germany Elects. So I think, I, personally, I think that you would get a, a, a better investment in ge- agenda out of an SPD or a Green finance minister. He would stand in the way of some of that. He would posture as the defender of solid German fiscal caution. And I think that would mean that the government could probably do less in terms of priorities like improving infrastructure, modernizing the state, investing in decarbonization. But that's a price I think the other two parties might be willing to pay to to, um, get into power. Well, we have another possible coalition question. This one's kind of funny because Joe starts her question or his question by saying basic one and then goes on to some specifics. So, okay, Joe asks basic one. I keep seeing polls indicating RRG coalition over 50% when the maths of SDP plus Bruna plus Linka doesn't add up to this. Do certain independents also count within RRG or is there another reason for this? So I'll unpack a couple of points there. RRG or red, red, green refers to a coalition of the Social Democrats, the Greens and the post-communist left party. Now the arithmetical point that Joe makes there has to do with the fact that, as I mentioned, parties need to obtain three constituencies or 
5% or more of the list vote to get into the Bundestag. Now, that means that about 8 or 9% of uh, votes go to parties that don't make it in, which then means that you only need about 46, 47% of the vote share to obtain more than 50% of the seats in the Bundestag. And while the red-red-green coalition, as it's known, does not score more than 50%, in most of the polls at the moment, some of them do suggest that it would have over 50% of the seats in the Bundestag. So that's, I think, what Joe's getting at there. Okay, so we have one now from Panagiotis, and I'm not actually sure to whom they're referring, but they wanted to know what's their position on a more integrated Europe, economy, defense, and foreign policy, what they believe is the best chance toward the best strategy towards autocrats like Putin, Erdogan, and is there any realistic chance for Dilinka to be a part of the government? So the First two, I actually think I'm going to take questioner's prerogative and um, ask who would, who do you believe would most push for a more integrated Europe or push hardest for a more integrated Europe? And who do you believe would be toughest on autocrats? I think Panagiotis is referring to the parties in general here. So that's a good way of putting it. On both of those, by the way, I'd recommend listening to our episode on um, the election and foreign policy, uh, the second of the German elect series. But to your question, I think that there's a general consensus between the, the mainstream parties on uh, the case for more European defence cooperation. The question's more what it would do, how much it would cost, which is always a difficult issue for Germany. I think that the most enthusiastically pro-European integration generally are probably the Greens and the Social Democrats. Uh, and obviously, by far the most opposed, first of all, the, the left party, um, which is sort of historically very sceptical about the EU and NATO, and most of all, of course, the far-right AFD. Um, who's toughest on Putin, Erdogan, and so forth? I think that's got to be the Greens, who have this legacy as a, as a kind of rooted party rooted in human rights movements, um, and so forth. But there are, the, there are parts of the other mainstream parties that, are, that, that want to take a tough line too. So elements of the Free Democrats, the Social Democrats, the Christian Democrats. Um, and then the final question, is there a realistic chance for the left party, Dilinka, to be part of government? To go back to the last answer, it would probably be, have to be uh, as part of a kind of red, red, green, or red, green, red, depending on the size, government, but which is potentially arithmetically possible. It's possible that they get more than 50% of the, the seats in the next Bundestag. But I think that the leaderships of the SPD and the Green Party are broadly sceptical about that. And I think it's possible, but I wouldn't put the chance at any more than about 15%. I mean, it's German elections. Anything's possible, but... It's going to be a wild ride, yeah. Right, yeah. We, we can't... <laughs> well, the wildest ride of all, or not the wildest ride of all, is coming to an end, which is... Merkel's long chancellorship. If anyone listening to this podcast has somehow not read Jeremy's cover story on the chancellor, you should do that. You're listening to this podcast. You're interested. Go read it. Thank you. And yeah, well, Raymond definitely should because Raymond wants to know. Well, Raymond starts the question by saying, I want to know, parentheses, because I'm nosy, close parentheses, what Dr. Merkel will do or what do you think she'll do once she leaves the chancellery? Straightforwardly, probably not very much. I know someone who knows her thinking on this and described it as she's going to go to her house in the Uckermark, which is this rural area north of Berlin, and she's going to make potato soup and listen to Wagner. So I think for, for the first first step would just be she's going to chill out. Um, we know that she's she's going to stay based in Berlin. Uh, there is speculation, would she in the medium term pursue some big international job, UN general secretary or something? I'm just not sure. But I think for the time being, probably very little. For the time being, it's uh, it's potato soup in the woods, which honestly sounds sounds, sounds not bad. There are um, worse ways to spend one's time, yeah. 
I also want to just note that, so if you have been listening with to this podcast for a while now, um, you will remember that we did election night in the United States, which was a mess. I mean, it wasn't a mess on our part. We did a great job, but it was a mess on the part of the- The election the, was a mess. The coverage right, was on the part, of, uh, the part of US democracy. And, and we weren't able to tell you night of, or even for days who won. But this Sunday, we will also be doing an election watch. Jeremy, do you want to tell the listeners a bit about what you have planned? Yes, please. We will be doing a live blog on the New Statesman website, newstatesman.com, starting at 6pm Berlin time for that first uh, prognosa uh, or forecast, as I, as I put it. And then we'll follow the results as we get them over the course of the evening and, and, and discuss what they mean in terms of possible coalitions, um, how the parties are reacting, interesting observations about how the voters have behaved, a lot of moving parts in this election. It's still a relatively closely bunched one by German standards. Um, so do follow that on our website, newstatesman.com. And then we will have a special episode of this German Elects podcast on the Monday morning, reviewing the results and asking what to make of them. So thank you very much for that little chance of self-promotion there, Emily. Yeah, I'm excited that you will that you will actually, uh, that, that you're, those following along with you will actually get to know what's what's happening, Night Of. Uh, nice, nice change of pace. Indeed. Well, with that, thank you very much for, for, for joining Germany Lex and have a good time in Israel. Oh, vielen Dank. Tschüss. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to The New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can subscribe for £1 a week in the UK or €1 a week on continental Europe by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe. After the break. We actually called it, you know, a climate election pretty early on because the polls, voters' concerns and, and also, you know, the rise of the Green Party very early on indicated that this was a major issue. That's Sven Egenter, who will be joining me shortly. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.
And now let's turn from the short-term outlook to the long-term outlook and the climate crisis. And to discuss that and the German election, I'm really pleased to be joined by Sven Egenter, who's editor-in-chief of Clean Energy Wire and a very informed observer of German energy policy and European energy policy more widely, and our very own Philippa Nuttall, who's the environment and sustainability editor at The New Statesman. You may have read her very good take on Angela Merkel's climate legacy. Um, so welcome, Sven. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. A pleasure. And welcome, Philippa. Thank you. So we're going to start with that question of Merkel's legacy. Uh, what is it that the next German government will inherit when it comes to climate policies in Germany? Philippa, I mentioned your piece on Merkel's record as a, as a so-called climate chancellor, which was a, a, an epithet she was given relatively early on in her chancellorship. Why don't you just start by by talking us through the arguments in that piece and, and how you see her record on the climate? So I think the basic conclusion is in terms of at a, an international level, to have this epithet of the climate chancellor was probably largely correct. And when she was given it, she'd led the 1997 Kyoto Protocol negotiations, which was the first international climate protection treaty. She'd also led the G8 leaders to accept the science around climate change and to agree at least to halve global carbon emissions by 2050. So at an international level, she was definitely a leader. And I think throughout her chancellorship, that was something that, that she continued to do. If we then look at a, an EU level, she was definitely a leader of sorts, but she also had certain bias towards perhaps certain industries such as the car industry, which perhaps clouded her judgment to a certain extent. She was very defensive of the car industry, especially in terms of emission standards, for example. And that weakened her, her her legacy at a, at a European level. And then I think if we look at a domestic level, this defense of industry, wanting to do right by everybody in Germany and not to perhaps push from the front, which I think is probably a, a general part of her leadership style, that she was more somebody who, who, who led from behind, perhaps. And, and that's something I'm sure that you can, you can bring out, out more on, um, meant that she was never the climate leader and definitely not a, a climate chancellor at a, a domestic level. What do you think, Sven? Because, I mean, as, as Philippa says, there's, there's, there is a bit of a gap between the, the great hopes that came from Merkel's background as a previous environment minister and what she leaves. I mean, I'm always struck by the fact that per capita emissions here in Germany are really quite substantially higher than in comparable economies like the UK or France. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're, you're absolutely right that there is a, a wide gap between what people you know, who know about climate science, about the climate change and the need for action would have hoped for and, and what she and her government uh, over the last 16 years have delivered. And, and I would say that if you talk to people here in the, you know, climate activist scene, but also in politics or in, in NGOs and think tanks, there's a sort of mix between respect for her as a person and the fact that most people will tell you that she really gets climate change, she understands climate science, she understands what's at stake, and the fact that she didn't put herself more actively at the forefront here in Germany as well and show more leadership. And, and, and Philippa mentioned it, and, and you've mentioned it, it has a lot to do with her leadership style, I would say. And we can just 
you know, basically, you know, she said it herself in, in two occasions that were really important for climate action. One was, you know, now just recently when she was asked at her final press conference, you know, about, you know, her climate record and whether she saw, saw herself as a climate chancellor. Her, her answer was, I have devoted a great deal of energy to climate action. And nevertheless, I'm sufficiently equipped with a scientific mind to see that the objective realities show that we cannot continue at this pace but that they require us to speed up. I mean, this in her very dry way of putting things is basically saying, yeah, I get it, but I failed. And the reason why she would you know, act in many ways as she did, and we can talk about details of German climate policy, certainly in this podcast, she said at the height of the Fridays for Future protests in 2019, when the German government passed the first climate law, she basically said, you know, when asked about the, the drive of the Fridays for Future and, and, and she said how much the uh, role they played and how much they admired them, she said, you know, but politics is what's possible. And I think these two quotes actually pretty much uh, summarize uh, her as a person and her track record in, in climate action. She understands it. In many ways, she tried, but, you know, clearly politics, the way she played politics, prevented a more ambitious approach. One of one of the things that I think burnished Merkel's reputation among environmentalists here was her decision in 2011 to reverse a plan to prolong the life of Germany's nuclear power stations in the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster. And one hears different things about the effect that's had on Germany's overall environmental profile. On the one hand, it has made Germany a leader in moving out of nuclear power, which many in the environmental movement see as a big positive. But it's also meant that the country's remained more reliant on on coal power. Would either of you like to come in on, on, on what whether that has been a net positive or not? I may take the lead on that because this question has been around since we started the clean energy wire in 2014. You know, basically, isn't Germany doing it the wrong way around and you know, didn't the government basically make the path to a, a sort of climate neutral economy much harder by that decision. And I would answer in that one is like, you know, it, if you just took a blank slate and you said, look, you know, we can decide with no back history and no realities on the ground, which way to, you know, in a staggered manner, get out of various fossil energy sources, and, and many would actually call nuclear in a, in a certain way a fossil energy source as well. You, you might make a case that you would start with coal and, and, and ultimately gas and then nuclear. Now, there are a lot of technical debates about you know how feasible a combination of renewables and nuclear is, so I, I don't want to get into that. But Let's remember, Germany had a near 50 history of really almost, vi well, violent uh, battles over nuclear power. This is the At Atomkraft Nine Dunker movement, right? Nuclear power, no thanks. Exactly. And, you know, nuclear power had never had a majority in Germany. You know, it was accepted, it was sort of pushed through, but it had never an, an, uh, a majority. Now, to think that we would have debates about a coal exit in the early 2000s and then, you know, at some stage over nuclear power later. Well, yeah, that is, you know, a, a, a reality that never existed in Germany. And what she did, she took that issue off the table. So everybody, including her ministries and, you know, the, the, the environmentalists now could focus on uh, you know, getting out of coal uh, fired power generation, which, you know, it's 
hard to imagine that you know you, you would have had an, a discussion at any stage that went the way like yeah let let's stick a around with nuclear a little bit longer and then let's now focus all on coal that wasn't the, the debate at the time and um, so i would say if you look at the the realities in germany you know what you said certainly if you just look at the at the figures and on the co2 footprint greenhouse gas footprint there might be some truth to that but you know it's like talking about a different reality that just never existed and i'm not sure that we would be in a different place right now in total emissions, given, you know, the coal track record Germany had anyway. Philippa, could you come in on this? Um, also, you're, you're in Brussels, so I wonder if you could also add a, a European perspective here. I mean, Germany's energy mix does look quite different from its neighbours, whether it's France and the French ongoing use of nuclear power, or Denmark and the Netherlands with their expansive wind energy output. How does it stack up? And, and, and would you like to come into on that, that point specifically? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. So I think in terms of the decision on, on nuclear power, I think what Sven said was was quite correct and that the nuclear power never had a majority in Germany. And so she had the public support to come out of nuclear. And perhaps also as a scientist, she saw what had happened in Fukushima. And if it had happened there, the same thing could potentially happen, happen in Germany. So I think that, you know, that is a decision that, that she took. I think what's perhaps more interest, interesting is on the, the other side of the coin, she didn't put the attention or the support, the full support to renewables that she perhaps should have done, and that various policies sort of in support of wind or in support of solar went up and down, which means that perhaps that Germany hasn't advanced as quickly as it could have done in bringing wind and solar power online than some of its neighbours, as you say, in, in Scandinavia, for example. On, I think, to the election campaign itself, and obviously the climate has been a significant topic in this campaign, partly because of the floods in Western Germany, partly because I think the rise of the Green Party over the last years has pushed it up the agenda, partly thanks to Fridays for Future. Sven, you're here in Berlin. Have you been surprised by how much or how little the climate crisis has featured? And I mean, I see that there has been some criticism of some of the media coverage of this in the campaign for focusing too much on 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 climate changes as as simply a or responding to climate change as simply a big burden on the country that it's been it's been characterized in quite negative terms what do you think well first of all i do think that this is the first climate election campaign or season germany has ever had and and you know even though a lot of people make a good case that, you know, the debates could have been, you know, more focused, they could have been more sincere and also more honest in, in many ways. I would say, you know, just compare it to 2017. I mean, my team in 2017 literally counted the mentions of the words energy transition and climate throughout the 2017 campaign. And we ended up with a handful zero in the leaders' debates. It just didn't feature at all. Now compare that to 2021. And we actually called it, you know, a climate uh, election pretty early on because the polls of voters' concerns and, and also, you know, the rise of the Green Party very early on indicated that this was a major issue. It's all over the place now as a topic. You can't get around it as a political party. If you look at the platforms, if you look at the campaign trail, the, the TV ads, the, the leaders' debates, you can't get around it. Now, obviously, you know, we're 
like everywhere in the world, we're pretty late to the game. You know, this should have been happened 20 years ago, you know, this sort of debate and this sort of campaign. Then we would have probably said, yeah, that's just about right for the state of play. And I, and I get the criticism, the criticism in terms of the media campaign focusing on the costs. Well, you know, this is a political, an election campaign. And it's, I think, you know, it's, it, what else would you focus in in the near term as on the question, look, we have a big task at, uh, at hand, something we really need to fix. Now, how are we going to do that and who's going to pay for it? I think that, that these are legitimate questions in a, in a democracy. My personal view, have they been overplayed? I don't know. I, I think it, it depends what the next government will put in place, frankly. If we get a framework that allows us to get to climate neutrality uh, early enough to meet the Paris Agreement. Philip, are we seeing the climate rising up the political agenda more widely in Europe? I mean, because a lot of these trends, whether it's the prominence of the Green Party or the role of the likes of Fridays for Future, obviously go beyond Germany. I mean, is this is this is this a broader pattern of of, of, of climate elections, as Sven puts it? I'm not sure whether it, I don't know whether it's a broader pattern of climate elections, but I think the issue of climate change and a transition to a, an economy which is based more on renewable energy, energy efficiency rather than, than fossil fuels, as it has been historically is something which is here to stay everywhere because there is clearly a growing awareness from political leaders, but I think also from the the general public as various polls and and surveys show. But people understand increasingly that the extreme weather events, for example, that we've seen this summer, whether it's the floods in Germany or heat waves in southern Europe, are related directly to climate change. And it is already having a direct impact on everybody's lives. How far then... Uh, political candidates will go in terms of being ambitious and actually stepping up in terms of either how we finance this, as Sven has just mentioned, or the difficult changes that will have to be made in society and how much they are actually uh, concretely dealt with in election campaigns, I think remains to be seen. And I think it depends perhaps also to what happens in the the COP, the climate talks in Glasgow this November, as as to what political leaders agree and, and where that takes us. Indeed. And uh, let's come on to that in a second. But briefly before we do, um, Sven, um, your organisation Clean Energy Wire has published a a sort of overview of the uh, climate and energy policies of the main parties in this election. And you go into lots of very interesting detail about the differences. But for our listeners, can you just give a, a broad sense of how those shape up? Well, I mean, uh, I can only invite everyone to sift through the, the, the detail, uh, level of detail the parties have gone to now, which a lot of people would still think are not sufficient. But, um, you know, if you compare that again to four years ago, you know, there is a lot more in that. Now, I mean, there, there are, um, it, it, it's unsurprising that you have a Green Party that, you know, wants more ambitious climate targets of faster coal exit. Uh, that you know aims for a higher renewable share in 2030. Um, that also makes you know a strong point about clean mobility, an end date in, in combustion, internal combustion engines. So far, the sort of like main pillar of the German car industry, and you have the two currently governing parties: the the conservative CDU CSU and the Social Democrats were obviously, you know, they put in their party program pretty much in many ways the, the, what they've just agreed on as the targets for uh, the climate law. 
Um, and then there, you know, one thing that, and then you have the, the business oriented or pro business free Democrats, the liberals, where, you know, market driven mechanisms feature very high and also, you know, a, you can sense a very strong rejection of anything that only vaguely smells of banning something. Um, and, um, but, you know, one thing everybody agrees on, and that was really striking also in, in, in one of the early debates of the, the leaders, you know, one, for instance, at the energy industry uh, conference, you know, there is a wide agreement that we need a much faster and a much more modern digitalized uh, built up of, of renewable energy sources in Germany, that this cannot go on uh, at the pace it has been. And then obviously you, you get a whole you know, range of ideas how to make that happen. And then depending on where you're, uh, which party you look at, there is a, a more or less strong focus on you know, direct support of affected industries, especially the, the, the workers, uh, what you, know, you would call a just transition, which is obviously a very, uh, features highly on in the Social Democratic Party's uh, platform or the left party as well, which incidentally has, just looking at the targets, the most uh, ambitious um, program, so it lacks some of, you know, the sort of material, how that's going to happen. Philippa, you mentioned the upcoming COP26 talks, huge expectations riding on those. Could you speak a bit about what the world more generally needs from Germany's next government when it comes to climate policies, whether we're looking at COP, whether we're looking at its role in the European Union, whether we're looking at it as a, a, a sort of a leading G7 country? What would be on that wish list? I think what's on that wish list is, is in a way what's on the, the wish list from, from anybody who is now in a position of power is that climate change, the energy transition more generally stays at the top of their political agenda. It doesn't become a, a ball that we bat around between different parties within a country, different countries. It, it's something that the world can only solve together if everybody steps up. It won't be easy. It will cost money. And there are also sectors, for example, that we've not touched upon today, like agriculture, for example, which in Germany is a big source of, of emissions as well. And so decisions have to be made, you know, at an EU level as the EU and every country needs to, to step up and, and, and play its role. Um, and I think that's extremely important now. It's not something that we can just talk about during an election campaign and then say, well, this is actually quite difficult. So we're not going to, to, to move forward for the moment. I think Sven's point about workers is key to show that many of the actions that we can do, whether it be renovating homes, more simple actions like that perhaps can also create jobs while bringing down emissions. And these are the kinds of, of messages that I think political leaders now need to get out to the general public, that this doesn't have to just be pain. There's also gain um, for people if we move in the right direction together. Absolutely. Well, I think I think that's a good point to close on because, as Sven says, a lot of this will come up in the in the coalition talks, which we're expecting might take quite a long time. So it's something to look back at in the future. So I'd like to say a big thank you to both of you for joining us. You can follow the work of Clean Energy Wire, Sven's organisation, at their website, which is cleanenergywire.org. Very interesting takes on the different German parties climate policies. Uh, so thank you for joining us, Sven. Thank you for the discussion. And Philippa's piece on Angela Merkel's climate record will be in the show notes of this podcast and available, of course, at newstatesman.com. Thank you very much for joining us, Philippa. Thank you for having me, Jeremy.
That's it for this episode, and indeed for the election campaign. As a reminder, this is the fifth episode of Germany Elects. Episode 1 focused on the election's historical context, episode 2 on foreign policy, episode 3 on the SPD and debates about economics, and episode 4 on Merkel's legacy and the CDU. You can find them all on the World Review podcast feed or at newstatesman.com slash Germany. I'll be back with a special Germany Elects episode on the morning after the election, that's the morning of next Monday, September 27th, for immediate reaction to the results and a discussion of what comes next. Be sure to join me then, and in the meantime, tell your friends and acquaintances about Germany Elects. There will be another regular episode of World Review on Friday, in which Emily and Ido will be delving into the fallout of the Australia-UK-US submarines deal, AUKUS. You've been listening to Germany Elects, a special World Review pop-up podcast from the New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. You can read all of our German election coverage, including our live results blog at newstatesman.com slash Germany. And follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Cliff. This podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.